This is Lee Habib, and this is Our Business to History, and your stories, too. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And up next is the story of Mike and Deborah Bailey. After losing their daughter to an overdose, the Baileys did what some would consider to be the unthinkable, by forgiving the dealer who sold the drugs to their daughter. Ashlyn was really fun, little tiny thing, always smiling. Full of energy. She's one of those just magnetic people. She was at church all the time, so she was very familiar. So she was six years old when she mm. became a Christian. She just was like, Mom, I want, I want to do this. She talked to the children's minister as well as the pastor, and they were like, yes, she totally gets it and totally understands. From a little bitty age, she wanted to be a cheerleader. She was the one that they would just see how high they could throw her, you know? <laughs> and she loved it. When she started in kindergarten, she came home upset because some of the other girls wouldn't let her be in the club because she wasn't big enough, and it really crushed her. When people would tease her about it, she would just kind of laugh with it. They didn't really think it bothered her. She would forgive and just kind of move on. I think it's something that started in an early age, built that toughness up. I think she kind of went over and above to prove to everybody that she was important. So I really think she started experimenting with drugs just to prove that she was, you know, she was cool like the rest of the gang, you know. So Ashlyn's addiction started kind of in ninth grade as her just sampling weed just to try to fit in. And that kind of grew into, you know, a stronger addiction over time and stronger pills. Her senior year, it was really taking a pretty hard slide, her attitude around us. And we had been trying to parent her through it. She ended up deciding to go to rehab. Came back from that, a very strong Christian, but she went right back into the same environment that she was in right back into the same environment that she was in before she went out there. And within two or three days, she was already back to smoking weed again. Two or three years, it was just a downhill spiral. Her drugs kept getting stronger and harder. She got on the, you know, a pretty hard opiate addiction um, that led to heroin. Ashlyn went to purchase heroin, ended up purchasing heroin that was mainly fentanyl. They told us that they had found her dead of an overdose um, in, a, in an abandoned house downtown Birmingham. It was leading up to the sentencing hearing for the drug dealer. I don't know that I felt anything for or against him. We don't ever know if she would have been clean. You know, that chance was taken away from her. I'm dealing with anger. At times, you know, it's like, man, he needs to get what he's got coming to him. I mean, that's the earthly side as a dad because, you know, what I love so much got taken from me. And about that time, our son came to us and said, can I go see him? Because I want to go talk to him and I want to offer him forgiveness. And I was like, well. And I knew that, that I needed to go and talk to him or, or write him a letter or something. Uh, just to let him know that I forgive him. I get freedom from it, but he also knows that I don't have any uh, anger or hatred towards him. So I knew that I had to because Jesus forgave me and I'm called to forgive others. If he's got it, that's just, that's just confirmation for me that we're doing the right thing by doing it because all three of us are being 
convicted of the same thing. So we went ahead and we wrote him a, a letter of forgiveness. As a family, we write this letter to you, hopefully through the eyes of Christ, not to condemn you, but to allow your conviction to change your heart and your life. You need to know that we do not hold any ill feelings toward you as a person created by God. We extend forgiveness to you for the wrongs against our family in the same way that Christ has forgiven our wrongs. I really, I think it, I think it kind of hit home, I hope anyway. Forgiveness is not righting a wrong. It is not reconciling a wrong, fixing it. But what forgiveness is, is what what's happened can keep me in bondage. And I'm not going to allow that, what you did, to have a stronghold over me. So I'm releasing this to God. Our goal also is God loves Roderick, the guy that killed him, as much as he loves anybody. So, I mean, he's got a story. God's got a plan for him, just like he's got for me. You know, I don't want to be the thing that keeps him from that, number one, but I want to be the one that helps, or we do, that leads him maybe closer to God. As many things as Ashlyn may have gotten wrong, the one thing she did get right was forgiveness. And all of us are gonna have some struggles, we're all gonna have some failures, we're all gonna have some people that hurt us. Forgiveness, like, changes it all. And I think that's one thing that she really did get right. And if I could copy her on that, you know, I think her, I, I would be in a lot better place than, than I would have been without it. And what a story and the power of forgiveness. Christian or not, forgiveness, well, sometimes that's all you have. And if you don't forgive, well, you are in bondage and that hate will consume you. What a story indeed. That's Mike and Deborah Bailey, their daughter Ashlyn, lost to fentanyl and to opioids. And my goodness, we've been doing any number of stories about families losing children to drug overdoses, and it's a scourge in the country. Seventy, Almost 70,000 people last year died of drug overdoses. That's more than the entire Vietnam War. And fentanyl has been the chief problem over the last few years. Fentanyl knows no class. It just comes in. It's a killer. And what a forgiveness story here, folks. The son teaching the adults the power of forgiveness. That letter, well, what better thing can you do to let go of that hate? My goodness, what a thing to read if you're the person who sold those drugs. What a second chance you're about to have if you'll just allow yourself to. And we do a lot of prison stories here on this show, too. The power of forgiveness, the power of love. Mike and Deborah Bailey's story, Ashlyn's story, and, of course, the son's story and that dealer's story here on Our American Story. continue here with our American stories and we love bringing you stories of family businesses 
Today, we bring you the story of a company who recently celebrated their 190th anniversary with four members of the sixth generation in leadership roles. And it just happens to be America's oldest brewery, Yingling. Here's Jennifer Yingling. Jennifer Yingling, I'm a sixth generation family member of America's oldest brewery. I have three sisters and the four of us comprise the sixth generation of, of Yinglings. So our dad, Richard Yingling, fifth generation current owner and president, has essentially been at the helm now for well, over 30 years, since 1985. We were founded in 1829 by my great-great-great-grandfather. Uh, he emigrated from Germany, came over here, and we've learned that he was the youngest of his siblings, and his father was a brewer in Germany. David G. Yingling realized that he would not have an opportunity to own and run the family business over there, so he decided to come to America and settled here in Pottsville, Pennsylvania. At the time, anthracite coal was becoming quite popular, so there were lots of thirsty coal miners coming home from work every day. So he, um, he built his brewery in downtown Pottsville. It was actually down on Center Street, where our city hall now stands, so that built that in 1829, was destroyed by a fire. So in 1831, he relocated over to the present site where we are now at 5th and Mockantonga Streets. We refer to that as our historic brewery built into the side of a mountain. So there was no electricity, no refrigeration by those means in those days. So he dug tunnels into the side of that mountain to use the natural refrigeration of the earth to age and lager the beers. Also, um, there, there was a spring, a well, not far from that location. So he used all of the spring water for his, his brewing needs. So you had David Yingling, and then he had, he had a couple sons. His one son, D.G. Jr., he branched off on his own and started a brewery in Richmond, Virginia called the James River Steam Brewery. I don't know that David was all that successful because it only lasted a few years. So a transition then um, set to second generation, third generation was Frank Yingling, who was my great-grandfather, and he probably was at the helm longer, I'm going to say 60-some years, longer than any other owner. Went through a lot of different trials and tribulations, and probably the biggest one being Prohibition. And that was an act in 1918. He really was a true entrepreneur, learned how to diversify, did a few real estate type ventures, made near beer, and that was one half of 1% alcohol, and that was, that was legal in those days. So produced near beer to keep many of his workers still employed, 13 years of, of not being able to make real beer. Then the biggest, I think, innovation, diversification that he did overall was uh, he built a dairy, which is across the street from the brewery. Um, where he made ice cream and milk products. As Prohibition came to an end, um, he had a batch of what he called winter beer, as though the breweries had won their fight against Prohibition, had that ready um, the day Prohibition was, was repealed and had it delivered to FDR's uh, doorstep the next day. <laughs> Fourth, you get into my grandfather and his brother. They were some really lean years. Um, you know, you're getting into kind of the 60s and the 70s there, and it was the rise of the mega brewers, if you will. You had your Budweiser, your Miller, your Coors. Interstate transportation became um, much more widely used in St. Louis, Missouri. Anheuser-Busch could make their beer, and they could get it across the country much more quickly than they had in the past. Advertising and merchandising budgets, uh, marketing budgets, became much more popular, too. So um, a lot of the local Brewers, regional brewers, started to either go out of business, families didn't want to run them anymore, or they simply got bought out by these, by these bigger brewers. And, you know, I, you give that fourth generation of my grandfather and his brother Dorman a lot of credit for just hanging in there through those, those lean years because there wasn't a lot of 
extra resources and capital to, to invest, but um, they were able to get by. We had a lot of local support from our community. Um, they supported our brands, and we just, we just, like my dad likes to say, we hung in there. My grandfather became ill in the mid-'80s, at which time my dad had broken off from the brewery and he had his own distributorship, so he had a local wholesaler here in town. So he still maintained ties locally. He had just distanced himself from the plant. So when, when his father became ill, um, he came back into the business, took it over, and that's when we really started to see our huge growth trajectory uh, take aim. A couple initiatives that he did were he invested. He had the, Once he had the ability to invest, he invested in machinery, increased our production efficiencies, um, and he came out with some good brands, like our, our, our traditional lager brand, which is our flagship today, um, black and tan, and, um, and then he came out with a light beer. So some great innovation there, too, in my dad's early years that put us on the map and enabled us to, to broaden our reach and expand our footprint. I'd like to talk about the founder being an entrepreneur, because obviously he founded his own business. And I almost think Frank, the third generation, was very entrepreneurial in being able to diversify the way he did. And I think my dad has a lot of those same characteristics. So he had a vision of, number one, this lager brand that he wanted to get into consumers' hands, a beer that had more taste, more character than what most consumers were used to seeing at that time. And, you know, I think my dad, along with Jim Cook, the owner of Samuel Adams, Boston, Boston Brewery, essentially pioneers in the craft brewery movement. They, you know, they were the first ones to come out with this beer that looked a little different. It wasn't yellow, it wasn't have that, that fizz to it. Um, it was an amber-colored beer with a little more flavor to it. So he had a vision, number one, he was an entrepreneur, and, um, and I think he had a lot of confidence in knowing what he wanted to do and, and very independently thinking to but able to surround himself with people, whether it was in the marketing department, the sales department, to get where he wanted to go. I think he saw that, you know, that the standard yellow pilsners, they weren't gaining volume and realized that you can educate consumers to different styles and different beers that are out there that, that have a different flavor profile to them. And he really, he hit, he hit it on the mark with our lager brand. It's about between 70 and 80% of our sales today. So he grew the business. We had our original historic Pottsville Brewery, which he got it to the point where it was maxed out on capacity. So by the late 90s, we were maxed out over there. We were making more beer than the brewery was able to sustain. That's when my sisters and I started to play a role because his thinking was, I need to invest here. I need to invest in this company if I want to continue to grow, but I don't want to do that unless I know the next generation is, is interested. But once he recognized that we had that commitment and we were, you know, we were interested in coming into the business, then he made the decision to build this brewery that we're, we're sitting in right now. So we call this our new brewery, even though it is almost 20 years old, and this has been here since, since 2000. At the same time, though, you don't build a brewery in a day. It, it takes a couple years. So we still had to we still had to get beer into into our wholesalers' warehouses because we just could not make enough over in Pottsville. So the timing was 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 appropriate. He happened to be in Tampa, Florida, and um, the last Stroh brewery in the country was was up for sale. So lots of different things, you know, all, all coming together really well there. The timing, the size of the brewery was good for us. So we bought that Stroh plant, did some trial brews, got a flavor match, and then all that initial beer came up into our northern markets to satisfy our, our wholesalers' needs until we were able to start pumping beer out of here. 
So at that point in time, once we had beer coming out of here, could start opening markets, New York, Maryland, Virginia, and then the beer from Tampa, we started opening up our southern markets, North, South Carolina, Florida, and then we've expanded as far west as like Mississippi, Tennessee, and we're in, currently in 22 states. It's amazing having his, and I would say it's close to 60 years of industry experience. So I think every day it's picking his brain, understanding why he thinks the way he does, because he was around and he remembers those lean days. So he's not quick to make changes or decisions um, because he's, we're in this for the long term. You know, we, we've been here for 190 years. You know, we, we, we say we want to be here for the next 190 years. And I don't think our ancestors would have allowed us to be here this long if they made too many knee-jerk decisions. So he's, he's, very, he's very meticulous about his thinking, and I think that's one of the things that we've, we've all learned from him. Don't, don't jump into something or, or jump on a trend or a fad just because everybody else is, because some of those guys might not be here tomorrow. Our goal is to be here for the next several generations. And you've been listening to Jennifer Yingling and the voice of the sixth generation of Yinglings survived some really lean years in the 60s and 70s when companies like Coors and Budweiser, the mass retailers, were at it. But in the end, really, they were the pioneers in this area, along with the Samuel Adams folks. And my goodness, exploding now today. Sort of reminds me of the Steinway story we did. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear that Steinway story, because my goodness, another great American business that has survived, well, many generations. When we return, we're going to continue with the story of this sixth-generation family business and with Jennifer Yingling here on Our American Story. Today, more people are finding what their soul needs to keep going. People want genuineness. And this is what I think Our American Stories is. It is genuine. It's pure. You're learning life lessons, but it's the way we teach it through these airwaves that make people want to tune in. There's no I in this. It is a we thing. This word needs to be out there. continue here with our American stories and the story of Yingling, America's oldest brewery, which just celebrated its 190th anniversary. The company's success has come in part from their patience. Let's get back to Jennifer. The 70s is when light beers started to develop. And I think we, we didn't come out with a light beer till the late 80s. So, you know, we gave it time to make sure it's something that's going to stick before we just jump on the bandwagon and say we're going to we're going we're gonna to change our, our model. Because our whole business model is kind of about scale and volume. So we run, we run very few products, we make them well, and we set up our production lines, and we don't do a lot of changeovers, and we're extremely efficient in that. So, and, and we need to be, because a small, I say that relatively small brewery today, playing in the same swimming pool with the global brewers, we have to be very meticulous with maintaining those efficiencies and, and, and saving monies. 
Grew up in Pottsville, went to college not too far from here. Kind of did a year after college not knowing what I wanted to do, a little, little bit of coaching. Um, went on to graduate school, got my graduate degree, and it was during that time, I was just finishing that up when we, we had that kind of like come to Jesus meeting with our dad, like what do you guys want to do with your lives? And I didn't have a job lined up, didn't know where I was heading, I mean had some thoughts. Um, but the timing was right for me then, I was like okay I'll come home, you know, bought a home here and you know that was 20 plus years ago. The map to where I am now in operations, I found that on my own. You know, just decided I, I, sales and marketing wasn't really my thing, accounting wasn't my thing, but I, I immersed myself in the operations end of it. Uh, went through a training program, it was pretty rigorous. Everything from incoming raw materials through the brewing process, you know, hot side, fermentation, storage, filtration, packaging, warehousing, logistics. So, you know, soup to nuts. Um, went, went to school then, which was like a 10-week uh, brewing course, and um, you know, I've found my own way. And along, the, along the, the, the years, I've tried to take some of the responsibilities off my dad's hands, like scheduling, um, ordering materials, and um, you know, tried to make life easier for him at the same time learning, learning from him how he does things. So, so that guided me, and you know, I'm, I'm in the role of VP of Operations right now. So I was actually, I was the first one to come on board, uh, and then Debbie, and then Wendy and Cheryl, slowly we each took our, took our own paths to get where we, where we are. We each have very different personalities in one respect, but interests, I think, more so. So, like I mentioned, I gravitated into operations. Wendy runs our sales and marketing. Debbie does a lot with our employees and our, and our cultural engagement, and, and Cheryl works in order services. So. We don't overlap a lot, and I think that's a big part of our success, because I think if we were overlapping too much and tripping over each other, we would probably struggle to make decisions, whereas because we have our own kind of areas of responsibilities, it, it works out well for us. We each have different areas of expertise, so it's a matter of respecting the other's um, expertise and their area, you know, and still the ultimate decision maker is our dad, like, because he's... You know, he's here every single day and, and he's earned that right. But I think w there's that comfort factor in that um, we have different ways of thinking sometimes, um, but in the end, what's best for the business is important to all of us. So that's, I think that's generally how we resolve, you know, anything that comes up that needs to be, that needs to be decided. I think there's been some things, I don't want to say it was a mistake, but things that we've done that maybe we've taken our eye off of our, and I'm gonna to refer to our core brands. An example would be seasonals. We started making seasonals a few years ago. And I think, we, we, so what we would do is we'd transition. We'd have Oktoberfest in the fall, and then we would roll into an IPL, our version of an IPA, it's an India Pale Lager. And then we would roll into summer wheat, and then that would be cyclical. And they were great brands, consumers loved them. Um, our brewers enjoyed making them, we had great packaging. But I think we learned that they became a bit of a distraction. So our operations people were, you know, spending a lot of time and being inefficient because we were we were making these brands. Our salespeople were were trying were pushing these brands and, and gaining shelf space with, with wholesalers and retailers. But in the meantime, we took our focus off of our lager brand. And I think we took a step back and we realized like this is our bread and butter. This is what we have to put first and foremost. So we decided to 
step back from seasonals a bit. We still make our Oktoberfest. We've kind of mothballed the other recipes for the time being. We keep things very simple. We don't overcomplicate things. We work hard. We expect everybody in the company to work hard. There's no sense of entitlement for anybody. We expect our people to think for themselves, figure problems out. We don't have a lot of layers. We're not corporate. If an hourly employee needs something, that individual has accessibility, not just to my sisters and me, and obviously his or her manager, but to our dad. So we're, we have a, a strong presence as a family across our, you know, across our employees and, and even our wholesalers. We look at ourselves too as a multi-generational family-owned company. But we're also very proud of the generations of employees that we have in our company too. So another kind of fun fact is that we've determined that 10% of our employees, and we have probably around 350 employees, 10% of those either have or have had a family member work here. So that's, that's kind of, that's, that's very important to us. And it shows that we're, we're dedicated to our employees, um, they're passionate about us, and we, they're enabled to have opportunities as well. So between our two breweries here in Pennsylvania, we're separated by our Tampa brewery by roughly a thousand miles. But there's, there's been folks who have transitioned from one brewery to another. So it's, you know, we have folks who started here as a, one individual in particular, as a forklift operator. He worked his way up to a lead and he's now our packaging manager in Tampa. So it's that opportunity and that training and growth and development that, that I had as a family member um, to grow through the company, but that we're able to support our employees with as well. I can think of another example of, um, he's our plant coordinator over in Pottsville, and he started here in his early 20s, um, cleaning tanks is what he did. It's, you know, it's kind of like the lowest job in the brewery is to clean tanks. Cleaned tanks, worked in the racking room, worked his way up to a brewer, brewed, cleaned uh, brewing equipment. When we, when we brought this plant online, he was instrumental in getting this started up, again, working from the bottom up and um, he was our brewing manager for several years and now he has ownership of our Pottsville plant. So, so everybody and everything over there is, falls under his jurisdiction. It's, you know, he works here, his wife works here in the accounting department. His two daughters, when they were going through college, they worked for us part-time. His son is a brewer over in Pottsville. So you kind of get that, that same theme, that family theme that, that we have with you know, quite a few of our employees. We have folks who start here maybe when they're 18 years old and they retire when they're 65. Every generation leaves its mark. Um, my dad's is obviously the tremendous growth that, that we've experienced during his tenure. And we're not a company that does things too, too quickly. And we joke, it's taken us 190 years to get to where we are. And we want the successive generations you know, coming after us to have those same opportunities. And we want to leave this brewery in good hands, viable, sustainable, sustainability, we want to be you know, conscious of our environment as well. So I think just leaving it a good company for the next generation is important to us. And you've been listening to Jennifer Yingling and the voice of the sixth generation of Yinglings running the oldest family business in the brewing world, and that is 190 years they've been together. And there's no doubt they'll be together another 190 listening to the care with which they run things. By the way, it was so interesting that they didn't see this merely as a family business, 
but it was a family business as it relates to the workers. The 10% had family members that worked there before. Is remarkable. The people spend their lives there. Is remarkable. And these small businesses propel the nation. Uh, they're the ones that turn into bigger business. 350 employees, that's 350 families, this small business is taking care of. The Yingling story, and what a voice Jennifer's is, VP of Operations there. The Yingling story here on Our American Story. And we continue with Our American Stories, and now it's time for our Rule of Law series, where we bring you stories about what happens when the rule of law is either present or absent in our lives. And here's Alex Cortez with today's story. Harvey Silverglade is one of the top lawyers in America whose mission is to protect our constitutional freedoms, and he's the author of Three Felonies a Day, How the Feds Target the Innocent. One of the major differences between state and federal criminal justice systems is this. Most state systems follow the common law rule. This is an ancient, inherited from the British, ancient system that says as follows. In order to be convicted of a crime, you have to be shown not only to have violated the statute, but you have to be shown to have intentionally and knowingly, there are the words, intentionally and knowingly violated a known legal obligation. What this means is the prosecutor has to prove to the jury beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant acted with an intent to break the law. And that is a protection that was built into the Anglo-American legal system. It has been around in Britain for centuries. It's been around in this country since the founding. But the federal system is different. In the federal system, you don't have to be shown to have understood the law. You have to have been shown to engage in the conduct you engaged in knowingly and intentionally. But of course, that's true of everything that we do except maybe what we do in our sleep. But it doesn't matter whether you thought you were doing something lawful. And that's how the feds are able to get so many people convicted. Whereas in the state, you actually have to have been shown had criminal intent. That difference between the state systems is the reason I did not write a book about innocent people getting convicted in the state system. Some innocent people do get convicted, but it's typically because the jury believes government witnesses rather than defense witnesses. Did you rape this person? No, not rape this person. But you have witnesses that you did rape this person. Did you commit the bank robbery? No. Either the teller gets believed or you get believed. But it's obvious that rape is a crime. It's obvious that bank robbery is a crime. It's obvious 
that arson is a crime. But in the federal system, all that has to be proven is that you did what you did and you did it knowingly and intentionally. It does not have to be shown that you should have understood or you did understand that what you were doing was a crime. And that's how they convict so many people who thought that they were acting perfectly innocently. And that's where I get my subtitle of how the feds target the innocent. Including a guy named Joseph Edward Morissette. Morissette is a Supreme Court case that every law student studies because it is such a paradigmatic case for the excesses of federal prosecution. Unfortunately, it is honored more in the breach these days. It is not followed, even though it is studied by law students. It's sort of an irony. But Morissette was this fellow who would go through particularly wooded areas, areas which had been used for target practices by the military in particular, and he would collect spent cartridges. The spent cartridges were useful, were valuable for the value of the scrap, but he would go through these areas and he would pick up from the ground lead and other metals that were used for target practice, and he would then sell the metal and he would make a fairly good living doing that. He was indicted because these materials were technically on federal property or technically belonged to the federal government. Mind you, the government was not going to be use them for anything. But Morissette, he was indicted because this was technically government property. The charge against Morissette was that he, quote, did unlawfully, willfully, and knowingly steal property of the United States. And yet, the judge wouldn't let Morissette's lawyer argue that he didn't knowingly steal. That he didn't even know that he was on federal property, and that there was no notice that what looked like abandoned cartridges weren't technically abandoned, even though they actually were. How is that a system of justice, a rule of law? that a defendant can't refute the direct charge against them. But because federal law apparently doesn't care about you not knowing that you did something wrong, I guess a defendant can't make that argument. But sitting here as a non-lawyer normal person, it seems like you shouldn't be able to charge someone for knowingly doing something if the knowing part isn't on the approved list of what can be debated in court. But perhaps the government has a more enlightened version of common sense than we do. The problem, the problem in a case like Morissette, the problem in so many of these federal criminal prosecutions is the jury cannot get the whole story because technically it doesn't matter. If there's something that is not technically, legally a defense, the prosecutor will object to the admission of the evidence and you're not allowed to present it. So juries don't get a full picture of what the defendant did and what his state of mind was. And, and that's, that's because the rules of evidence are so narrow and in some cases so artificial 
jurors don't get a full picture. Um, often, I think to myself, in the days when I did a lot of jury trials, I think to myself, if only this jury knew what I know, they would be so sympathetic to my client. But they don't end up knowing that much because the rules of evidence only allow the admissibility of technically relevant evidence rather than background information that the juries really should know in order to judge whether or not this defendant really acted in a way that was malicious or had criminal intent. So the system is skewed terribly against the defendant. Federal trials are not meant to paint full and accurate pictures. They're meant to give juries a very narrow, narrowly focused view that is usually the prosecutor's way of looking at what happened and why it's a crime. So that's the reason why the system being so unfair. That's the reason why 97% of defendants, why they're convicted at trial, or much more commonly why they plead guilty and just throw in the towel, even if they don't believe they've committed a crime. The case made it up to the Supreme Court, which decided the grant review, and he won that case in the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court said that this, this stuff was abandoned. He didn't commit a crime. This was abandoned. It's not theft of government property. And that case is, to me, I had a, a chapter on it in, in three felonies a day because what it demonstrates is how the feds overreach and how they use statutes to convict people who act in perfectly innocent ways. It didn't matter that Morissette had no idea he was committing a crime. It didn't matter to the prosecutors that he did absolutely no harm to anybody. He did not really steal government property. The government abandoned this stuff. And yet, the feds went after him. Why in the world the feds would utilize resources of the Department of Justice to go after a guy like Morissette? You have to ask, you scratch your head. And of course, the answer is that these prosecutors don't have enough useful work to do. They sit around all day to figure out who they can get and how they can get them. And they so often focus on people whose conduct is innocent and who simply violated, arguably violated some statute that no normal human being would have assumed covered the activity in which they engaged. So to me, it is the paradigmatic example of the problem. And Barr said, what is case? But it doesn't seem to have stopped the practice that the court dealt with. You were listening to Harvey Silverglate, and he's the author of Three Felonies a Day, How the Feds Target the Innocent. And you can buy it at Amazon.com. It's a must read because this could be any of us, folks, especially if we work in businesses that have anything to do with a large federal bureaucracy. You are truly committing at least a few crimes a day that you don't know you're committing. And any knock on the door could ruin your life. And again, with no knowledge of committing a crime, how do you charge people with a crime? And I know you're wondering, listening, why didn't the, why didn't the Fed just tell the guy to stop doing what he was doing and he was on federal land? 
Uh, it's just an obscenity. And by the way, there's an extraordinary bipartisan group of lawmakers, from Republican Ted Cruz to Democrat Sheila Jackson Lee, who've gotten together to propose a common-sense reform called mens rea, which means guilty mind, and that you should only be charged with a crime if you knew that it was a crime. It's a bedrock of the rule of law in Western civilization, actually, but one that's tragically been missing in the federal justice system. Our rule of law story, the Morissette case, here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on the show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your story. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And this next story comes to us, well, Greg Hengler brings it to us, and actually the person providing this story is a listener in Colorado. Charles Tex Watson was just a young guy from Texas in 1969 when he came under the spell of drugs in Charles Manson and helped kill seven people. Watson attended Cal State Los Angeles but dropped out less than half a semester later, got a job selling wigs, and began living it up in the party scene of Los Angeles. One fateful evening, he was driving home and picked up a hitchhiker. In Watson's words, Hitchhikers were pretty common on Sunset Boulevard, and I pulled over to pick one up. When he told me his name was Dennis Wilson, it didn't mean anything to me. But when he said he was one of the Beach Boys, I was impressed. Wilson, the Beach Boys drummer, then directed Watson to his home on Sunset Boulevard in the Pacific Palisades area of Los Angeles. Watson was shocked when he pulled up. In the living room, Watson found a man sitting on the floor with his guitar, surrounded by six young women. He looked up, Watson later recalled, and the first thing I felt was a sort of gentleness, an embracing kind of acceptance and love. Another man at the house introduced them. This is Charlie, Charlie Manson. On August 9th, 1969, under the direction of Charles Manson, Watson and three other Manson girls murdered pregnant actress Sharon Tate and four other people on Benedict Canyon. Manson girl Susan Atkins later recalled Watson waking up a victim in the living room whispering, I'm the devil and I'm here to do the devil's business. The following night, Manson accompanied the previous night's killers and supervised the murder of two more victims in Los Feliz. These murders are considered some of the most gruesome and shocking in American history. Tex Watson stayed in Los Angeles for almost two months before fleeing to Texas where he was arrested. But it's those two months following the Manson murders where the story from our listener in Colorado picks up. Here's Patty Kingsbaker. This story happened in 1969 I had graduated from high school in Miami and moved out to California to live with my brother, who was living in Los Angeles at the time. 
And it was the 60s. My brother was 10 years older than me. So we kind of, you know, it felt like we had really grown up in different generations. I mean, our ideals. And he was a little uh, worried about me being a hippie and maybe going down the wrong path with him at this time of my life. So I had been in Los Angeles for a year, um, had gotten to know a few people and you know, was doing the things that kids in the 60s did. You know, one of the days I was with a friend of mine, and I'm not sure why I was hitchhiking. Either I didn't have a car yet, it was kind of probably right after I got there. But we had hitchhiked from the valley, San Fernando Valley, over to the beach. And when my brother heard about it, he about lost his mind. And he was like, no, no, you were not Anyway, so I eventually got a car, and, you know, it was a time when things were just more open, and a lot of people were hitchhiking, and, you know, we picked people up, you know, it was just what happened. But this one night, I had been over in Malibu with some friends, and I was coming back into the valley, and I was coming through Topanga Canyon, and when I made the turn off Pacific Coast Highway, there was this guy. It was raining. It was like torrential raining. And there was this guy on the side of the road. And so I pulled over. A, he was out there in the middle of this rainstorm. And B, that's just what we did back then. So I pulled over. But as soon as he opened the door and got in my car, I just got this sick feeling. I It, it was, I don't know what evil is. I don't know what it is. But I felt it. I was scared. I was absolutely scared. And I was like, I knew right then I had made a mistake letting this guy in my car. But there was nothing I could do. He's there. So we're driving through Topanga Canyon. Now, I mean, and it is torrential rain. And there are mudslides on the road. I'm scared. Um, I'm having to go much slower than I would have gone through the canyon. I'm just thinking, God, get me to the other side of this canyon. And he was going to Reseda. I remember that. And I lived in Woodland Hills, which is another part of the San Fernando Valley. But I just wanted him out of my car. And he was trying to engage me in conversation. And I was just like, I finally just said, you know, I really can't talk. I can't talk. I really just need to concentrate on the road and my driving. I just can't talk. I was, I've never felt anything like that before. So when we got to the other end of Topanga Canyon, I just pulled over and I said, I'm really sorry, but I'm going a different direction and um, I need to leave you here. But And he was like, okay. And he got out and there was no incident. I mean, there's nothing, nothing bad happened, but it was just that feeling just stuck with me. And I was just like, I, I, I didn't get it. It was a few months later that I picked up the paper one day, and on the front of the paper were the pictures of the Manson family. And the guy who was in my car that night was Tex Watson. Needless to say, I've never picked up another hitchhiker, ever. That was enough. That night, just that feeling taught me not to do that. And there's been times I've passed people that I think, oh, but I just, 
have never been able to bring myself to do it. Well, that's a heck of a hitchhiker story, picking up Tex Watson, one of the worst killers and murderers of all time, and she could feel evil. I don't know her walk, her faith walk, or whether she is a person of faith or not, but boy, we've all come in presence of evil. We know it. We can feel it. And all we want to do is flee. Patty Kingsbaker's story, a great listener's story, a really awful hitchhiker's story, here on Our American Stories. And we continue here with our American story. Since being released in 1983, Francis Ford Coppola's film adaptation of S.E. Hinton's coming-of-age novel, The Outsiders, has found continued popularity and has achieved official cult status. And now, in what is surely one of the most interesting pop culture intersections of all time, hip-hop artist Danny Boy O'Connor from the rap group House of Pain, best known for their iconic 1992 anthem, Jump Around, purchased the Tulsa, Oklahoma home where much of the Outsiders film was shot. Here to tell the story is the man himself. Here's Danny Boy. My story really begins Los Angeles, California, 1983, when I went unknowingly to a movie that I had never heard of, uh, Woodland Hills, California, called The Outsiders with my friend Steve Sikulski, who um, just happened to read the book. I believe I was in seventh grade, and uh, so he was a fan of the book, and he wanted to see the movie. He said, Danny, you want to go see a movie with me? And I thought, sure, Steve Sikorsky, a uh, pretty cool junior high kid that I knew, so I figured, you know, if he likes it, it'll probably be something I like, but I had no idea what we were going to go see. I didn't have any frame of reference, and uh, on that full Saturday afternoon, we went in and saw the movie, and uh, I came out a changed man. And um, People ask me all the time, what was my fascination with The Outsiders? And the movie kind of hit me at a time where I definitely felt out of place in, uh, you know, the San Fernando Valley in the 80s, being a native New Yorker who um, was moved to California at the age of six and kind of always had like a, uh, a strong connection to the East Coast. Uh, so Southern California in the 80s looked a lot different than New York City did. And I don't know, I just always felt, you know, separate and apart from, and I, and I got that from the movie as well. And I grew up, my father went to prison when I was two months old. Um, we moved in with my grandparents. My mother worked nights at the Chase Manhattan Bank. And so I never really had that foundation or that family, you know, uh, support or love. And, you know, I carry, that, I carry that with me, even though, you know, I've had a, a pretty extraordinary life. Um, you know, th that, that foundation from the beginning has always felt unstable. And so when I went to see The Outsiders, the first thing I noticed was that they were a fractured family, a broken family. And that um, despite that, that they stuck together and... Um, had each other's backs and I felt at a 13 or 14 year old's mindset was that if I could just find that 
kind of friendship out in the in the world that maybe I wouldn't feel so bad about my home life and, and, and the way we grew up. And so that was the original hook for me for that movie. That being said, Matt Dillon was the coolest dude on the planet at that time. Um, the cast was incredible, whether it's Patrick Swayze, Ralph Macchio, Tom Cruise, Darren Dalton, C. Thomas Howell, uh, Diane Lane. They were all, you know, this was the first time I was really seeing them. Actually, Leif Garrett was the big star in my mind, uh, looking back, because he was a 70s star. And so really was the only notable name that I knew prior to, to The Outsiders then, Matt Dillon. But that being said, the, you know, the movie was, was, was the coolest thing I'd ever seen, and it, and it stuck with me. I immediately went home and then dug out a, a denim jacket that I may have had from the 70s in New York and uh, kind of uh, adapted that Dallas Winston, Matt Dillon swagger for the next few years. But uh, as fate would have it, I didn't really have much of a game plan coming out of high school. I, I dropped out in ninth grade. I hung out for the next three year, years at high school. Never really went in too much. Uh, got in a little bit of trouble with the law. And during the time where most of my friends were graduating high school and heading off to college or, or embarking on a career, I had no idea what I was going to do. And so I... Uh, Connected, reconnected with a high school friend who had had a record out prior to uh, me and him reconnecting and um, we started a band called House of Pain and at the time in hip hop there wasn't anything on the landscape like it. We were really, you know, uh, kind of the next wave of, of, of hip hop in the early 90s but at that time there wasn't any really, there wasn't really any hard white boys and we were like Irish American, tough white kids and that was our shtick and that our, our deal was is that you know we were the kind of like you know boom bap punch you in your face type of hip-hop uh, that was missing you know as 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 the 80s turned into the 90s and, and grunge was a thing hip-hop needed to reinvent so us and cypress hill were kind of like the next face of that in that moment and so was very successful with that and sold a few million records and traveled all over the world and made a million bucks but um you know, I like to say what goes up must come down. And it wasn't only, you know, five years later that I was back to where I started even less because, uh, you know, doing music for a living, especially as a creative director and, and an artist more than I am a musician, it kind of left me empty handed when the career was done or the music career was done in that moment. And uh, I really had no other life skills. And I unfortunately turned to drugs to deal with that pain. So I spent the next, you know, five to six years high on methamphetamines and, and drinking around the clock. And it wasn't until about year 2000 that I got sober. I stayed sober for about three and a half years. And, uh, you know, first year was good. Second year, I started getting complacent and, and a little my attitude started to come back and my expectations started to come back. And my, my, you know, I started to think, well, this is cool, but I don't know how long I'll stay. By year three, I started convincing myself that I only had a drinking problem, and then drugs were clearly my problem, but if I just drank, how bad could that be? And uh, maybe I don't need this, this, this sobriety thing. And so at around three and, three and a half years, I decided to have a drink, and it was pretty much the worst decision I'd ever made. It took me a two, a one week to go back on drugs, and took me three years to get, make it back to, a, to, a, to the 12-step program. 
and it wasn't until 2005 that I was able to get uh, draw another sober breath. And in 2005 is when I began to put another group together called La Coca Nostra, which was kind of a super group. I took pieces of my old group and another group called Nonfiction and a few uh, undiscovered up-and-coming rappers, and we put a group together under that name, La Coca Nostra. And it was on that fateful tour that brought me to Tulsa, Oklahoma. So when we got to Tulsa, Oklahoma, we were stuck here for three days. And when I say stuck, I mean stuck. That day was not really special. I didn't know what to do. We just kind of hung out in Tulsa, grabbed a few bites, and then called it a day. But day two of the three days that we were here, we began to get extremely bored. And so I called down to the concierge desk in the lobby and asked them to um, call us a cab. They laughed. Uh, there was no such thing as cabs. or downtown Tulsa at the time, and it was it was pretty much pre-Uber and Lyft and all of those rideshare things. So they were able to get, they were able to wrangle us up a guy in a van that took about an hour and a half to get to the hotel. And then when he got there, we asked him, can he take us on a proper tour of Tulsa, which he proceeded to say yes, and then took us to the Woodland Hills Mall. And uh, I can assure you that didn't go over so well with a bunch of 40 year olds <laughs> going to a, to a, what was at that point pretty, uh, you know, it, the mall was kind of shuttered as well. And so we went there uh, for about an hour, and as we were heading back to downtown Tulsa, it occurred to me, Tulsa, Tulsa, Tulsa. Why does Tulsa sound familiar to me? And it was at that moment I had the epiphany, and I said, excuse me, driver. And he said, yes. I said, was The Outsiders filmed here? And he almost like locked up the brakes. He was like, turned around, and he said, yes, absolutely. He says, why, do you know it? I said, I not only know it, I love it. Do you know where any of the filming locations are? And he said, I do know where the drive-in is. So we proceeded to drop off the rest of the group. I grabbed my road manager and said, you're coming with me. I grabbed my laptop. And at the time, even in 2009, there wasn't much on the internet to go on. And it's not like today. 2009, I looked up for locations for the Outsiders and I found a Flickr account or two and I found a site called Tulsa TV Memories which had a few of the locations and the addresses were given up. The address I was most interested in was the Outsiders house which was not given on that website but they did tell us where the drive-in was and it did tell me where the park in the movie was, the uh, Crutchfield neighborhood. And so we went to the drive-in and I couldn't Im imagine that this thing was going to look anything like it did in the movie but not only was it, uh, it felt like it, it, it hadn't changed a bit and my mind just started to, to just melt really because it, it looked exactly like it would have in 1982 when they were filming and exactly like it did you know in the 60s when they were trying to describe it so it was pretty good stuff anyway so yeah we got that driver to take us around Tulsa we were able to find the drive-in we were able to find Crutchfield Park which was the park that Johnny stabs the Socia in and they have the confrontation with the Socias in and then by finding the bark I was able to find the house and by finding the house, this is where the, 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 my life starts to take a different turn. And when we come back, we'll continue with the story of Danny Boy O'Connor from the rap group House of Pain, his journey back into his life, the movie The Outsiders, filmed in this town, Tulsa, in Oklahoma. The rest of this story continues here on Our American Stories. For more, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for the podcast.
And we continue here with Our American Stories and the story of Danny Boy O'Connor. And my goodness, what a story it's been so far. No father, a hole he's trying to fill because of that. Sees this movie, sees this character in The Outsiders, played by Matt Dillon, of all people. And the next thing you know, a little bit later, he's in a big hit band, House of Pain, and then Drugs. And then one day there's a stop in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where The Outsiders was filmed. And the next thing you know, there he is in front of the house where that movie was filmed. Let's pick up where we last left off. At the time, it was for sale for $40,000. I uh, can assure you, you can't buy anything in Los Angeles, California with the word real attached to it for $40,000. I could not believe that this house one would be for sale, two would be $40,000, and three, that that nobody understood its true value as a, an American classic and a, and a, a really a, a sacred uh, hollowed grounds. Um, that being said, I knew that I was in no position to buy a house in Tulsa, Oklahoma, living in Beverly Hills, California, and that I should just kind of take a photo and, 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 and soak it all in while I was here and then and keep it... Uh, keep moving. So that's exactly what I did. I took a photo out front. Uh, We played Kane's Ballroom the next night, and I also found out that there was a hole in the wall that uh, Sid Vicious had punched in uh, 1978 when the Sex Pistols played Kane's Ballroom. And I put both of those photos on Facebook, which was pretty much a new thing as well. And the response I got was incredible. And in particular, everybody was fascinated with the outsiders and that the house was not only one still on earth, but they couldn't believe that it was still on the Warner Brothers lot, which I had to correct a lot of people that it is no, it is not on the Warner Brothers lot in Burbank. It is actually still here in North Tulsa. And I made sure I did not tell anybody that it was for sale because I didn't want anybody else buying it. Never again thinking that I would end up buying it five years later. But that's exactly what happened. So after finding the house, we kind of, I, I realized that there's some, there's, there's, there's some real cool stuff across America. And so it really started here for me, but the, I started to urban explore and I put a group together called the Delta Bravo Urban Exploration Team. And what that is, is um, it's a page I started on Facebook and I put the outsider's house first and I put a before and after photo, told people the basics, you know, the outsiders, 1982, here's the house that the Curtis brothers lived, here's the address, 731 North St. Louis Avenue, and here's a before and after photo. And I found a lot of uh, support and made a lot of friends through this uh, web page that we started. And um, I found that there was a lot of like-minded people uh, all over the world, but here in particular in the U.S. that were at a certain age where they were like really looking back fondly on, on all of the pop culture locations and, and, and all of our collective history, which is really pop history. I mean, I was, if, if I'm honest, I was raised by a television set and the radio. I mean, this is where I got most of uh, the stuff I was after, you know, as a kid. This is where all my information came from. So in 2009, I used the tour bus as my personal personal like pop culture location vehicle and I figured if I'm going to be on this tour bus and everybody else is going to be you know doing their thing I'm going to get highly caffeinated walk around every city we go to and I'm going to look for uh, culturally relevant um, undiscovered locations and so that was the birth of the Delta Bravo urban exploration team I, again it just was like a cool hobby that I could do in my sobriety that really cost me nothing and it was I, I was also able to kind of like 
see all the, the, the undiscovered locations that I had always wanted to see, like where Mary Tyler Moore's house was in Minneapolis, where the son of Sam was arrested in Brooklyn, and, and, and stuff like this. Um, and because of the success of that on, on the internet, uh, I, I got so much, you know, um, so many accolades and met so many cool people, we, we started to do it like uh, pretty, we took it pretty serious for a while. We were actually getting courted by a lot of companies in Hollywood. They were trying to turn it into a t television show. It never really kind of worked out uh, television-wise, but the group kept growing and growing, so we started to go on group trips, and uh, meanwhile, I was still touring a lot, so I was going back and, and forth across the U.S., and year after year, a minimum of twice a year, but uh, sometimes three or four times a year, I would come back uh, um, whether on purpose or not, to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I'd always make a, a mission or pilgrimage to see the Outsider's House, and, and mostly some of the other locations as well. And what I started to notice is that year after year, this house was starting to deteriorate, and that the neighborhood was starting to fall apart, and that the Habitat for Humanity was coming through here, and they were clearing out a lot of these, these streets and, and, and these houses, building new houses. Um, I always like to qualify that I am a fan of the Habitat for Humanities and what they do, uh, in particular making low-income houses, you know, affordable to people who wouldn't be able to afford those. Um, and that being said, I was worried that nobody recognized this house for really what it was, which was an American classic and a, and a cinematic masterpiece, uh, you know, part of of a bigger, you know, picture. And so at year five is when I got here and started to get worried. I started to think, well, what if they tear this house down? And what if nobody recognizes that what, what, what this thing really represents and what it, what it is? And it's on the fifth year when I started to, to ask myself the question, well, why don't you do something about it? And um, really, I have no expertise on any of this stuff. I was, just a, I was just a fan who couldn't imagine the world without the outsider's house. There was really never a plan or a blueprint or any of that. But what I did was meet a couple people here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. They not only saw the vision that I had, that this should be some kind of like, one, it shouldn't, it, it shouldn't ever be torn down. Two, maybe it could be restored and it could be somebody's house and we could put a little display or some homage to the to the movie that was filmed here in one of the rooms and the idea just kept getting bigger and bigger but what it, what ends up happening is we end up getting the the contact information for the owner who her husband bought the house uh, five years before I got here and they basically did a quick fluff and buff in hopes to use it as a rental property unfortunately her husband died he gives it to her in the will, and her and her sister moved to Florida because they were not native to Tulsa, and they had no reason to stay here once her husband was gone. I guess it was, they were kind of like absentee landlords. I mean, they were, they were trying their best to collect the rent, but the tenants weren't paying. They were eight months behind in their rent. The house was in terrible condition, and so by the time I found her in 2009, she was ready to sell. Uh, we called her. She told us she wouldn't take a penny less than $20,000. My buddy made the call, so he said he wouldn't give her a penny more than $15,000, to which she accepted. And at that point, I thought, man, I, we robbed this lady. I mean, we bought an American treasure for $15,000. I mean, where on earth can you buy a house for $15,000, much less the house from the movie The Outsiders? 
So yeah, so I buy the house for $15,000. I buy it sight unseen. I had never been in the house. I had peeked in it a few times. I had been on the outside of the outsider's house a few times, but never really knowing the true condition of the house and also never understanding. I, I'm I, When it comes to you know, remodeling homes or anything that has anything to do with that, I have no idea what I'm doing. So I, this is not something that I would have been like predisposed to do or something that would have been a likely thing for me to do I was just a passionate fan who couldn't imagine if they tore this house down um, what the world would would be like without it and so I ended up giving the tenants little by little over a month to move them out because uh, again they were eight months behind in rent and it cost me forty eight hundred dollars to get them out when I finally drove here a month later from California to see my new house I ended up breaking in a back window because they did not leave me keys and I realized that this was the worst mistake I had ever made. And you just heard it from him, the biggest mistake he'd ever made, was it? Well, we're going to find out the rest of the story in a minute. But what a story it's been so far. He was raised on TV and a tour bus. And for $15,000, he thought he just bought a piece of the American dream and certainly an American treasure. What happens next? Well, we've all gone down this road before in our lives, folks. Something we thought was an opportunity, then we thought was a big mistake. And a little bit further down the road, well, who knows what. But some good came of that big mistake. Danny Boy O'Connor's story continues here on Our American Stories. For more, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. we continue with our American stories and Danny Boy O'Connor's story. He had just laid down 15 grand on a house in Tulsa, Oklahoma, a house with the outsiders. His favorite film, the film that had more influence on his life than any other. And we all have that film or that book or that song. Let's return to Danny Boy's story in Tulsa. Clearly the owner knew a lot better than I did the condition of the house. If there was any worry of me underpaying for this house. It was quickly erased when I got in here. I mean, this house was in shambles. The only thing this house needed was a brand new house, and uh, it was in terrible condition. And then the fact was that it, doesn't, it didn't look like it had been cleaned up in the last hundred years. They were hoarding in here, and it was in terrible condition, and I panicked. And at that point, I thought, well, Basically, I just flushed $20,000 of my $28,000 life savings down the drain. I had no work in the foreseeable future for me. We weren't touring at that time. And I had basically just put 80% of whatever cash I had left on earth into this house, which was a complete teardown. And so my next thought was like, look it, I'm going to ask for help. And uh, I often say, you know, I'm a six foot six alpha male. And it's hard to ask for help when people assume that you should be able to do this type of work. But the truth is, I don't know how to do this type of work. And it was very... It was very humbling, and I, and, and I had to really humble myself to, to, to admit that I didn't know what I was doing, and I was in over my head, and that perhaps if there were a few other Outsiders fans on Earth like me, 
um, maybe they could help me find a way to turn this into a to a museum and that was my thing I thought well I can't ask for help and then this is my my fort or my new home in Tulsa that didn't make any sense to me why people would would, would be interested because I wouldn't be interested in that but I would be interested if somebody was doing a museum to help pitch in whether that was a gift in kind or some cash or whatever and so we put a GoFundMe together and we started to raise a little money and immediately the press got a hold of the story and if I thought I was one of few outsiders fans on this planet it didn't take long for me to figure out that I was uh, clearly wrong on that. I mean, immediately the city council showed up to the house, the mayor of Tulsa showed up at the house, the press came out of the woodworks, and it just kept growing and growing and growing, and before long, you know, here we were on our way to turning this thing into a museum. Now, at first I want to tell you it was going to be a movie museum because I had read the book, but it was only a few years prior that I read the book. But this book, again, is, it is an American classic. It was written by a 15-year-old girl here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, by the name of Susan Eloise Hinton. The book is 51 years old now. It has never been out of print at the time when uh, Susie got her publishing deal. They agreed with the publishers that it'd be best if nobody understood that she was a, a female, so they called her Essie Hinton to be ambiguous with that. She was failing out of English when she wrote it and got a D-plus in creative writing, and I think that's incredible because the hope is there, um, you know, for everybody uh, that great things can happen despite maybe a few bad marks in a few, in, in a, in a few um, classes. And Really, the book is what brings most people to the house. Uh, people love the movie without a doubt. And that movie, you know, basically launched the Brat Pack, which is all the actors we've mentioned before, you know, Tom Cruise, Patrick Swayze, Matt Dillon, Ralph Macchio, C. Thomas Howell, Diane Lane, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, the book seems to have way more of a, a draw or is equal if not bigger draw than 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 the movie and that was learning experience for me as well because on an average day people come by this house all the time to um to stop by and it's usually you know uh, a 50 year old a 40 year old two 17 year olds and a 12 year old and it's usually somebody's going to seventh grade and it's required reading their older brother and sister read it five years ago when they were in seventh grade uh, their parents remember reading it when they got to junior high and they also were there to see the movie or saw it on HBO when they were kids and it's really the whole family tree that comes to enjoy this whole story from the book to the movie and now I'm told it's being turned into a, a Broadway musical which is also incredible so so much stuff has, has transpired since that first day of me buying the house but what ended up happening is that the whole community kind of just puts this thing on their back and runs with it um, plumbers came by and helped me plumb roofers roofed gardeners gardened um, tile layers tiled and contractors contracted and everybody just started to do what they could do and it looked like you know people would say hey listen on Sunday after my daughter's soccer practice I can come by and work for two hours for free if you don't mind us like, yeah it would be fantastic and so really this is a communal project. You know, I get thanked everywhere I go around town and around Oklahoma for, uh, you know, saving the outsider's house, but I feel disingenuous by accepting that praise. And I always tell them, and I think they think I'm being, you know, humble or being, you know, coy or whatever. But the truth is, is that this, this thing happens because everybody pitched in. Um, 
and helped. And it was usually the people with the least to give, given the most. Um, that being said, we we our number one supporter, um, cash wise, is the author Essie Hinton herself, um, and Jack White also, you know, came by and. Uh, Told me he loved the what we were doing and and loved the book. He loves the movie and loves Tulsa and and he got us over the hump. We were stuck at forty five thousand dollars on our GoFundMe and we were looking for seventy five thousand. And he said, I want to give you thirty thousand dollars from last night's show and get you over the hump, which he did that and um, changed everything. I mean, we were kind of we were what I thought would take six to eight months to complete took us three years. Um, two months ago, we finally were able to cut the ribbon. In between those last three years, we've done three events to support the house. We're both Ralph Macchio, C. Thomas Howell, Darren Dalton. All of them in the movie had come back one or two to three different times for three different events to support this. Um, and really what I found out is this thing has become like a community center um, and had a really good trickle-down effect. I mean, when I got here, the lawn was to my waist uh, and trash all over the place. We cut the lawn, got it down to size. We removed all the debris. We cut down trees that had, you know, fallen in upon themselves. And we basically cleaned this house up so nice that everybody else in the neighborhood started to get the drift and they started to clean their stuff up. And before long, it, it changed the face of the neighborhood as well. And so if you come here in North Tulsa on the corner of Independent and St. Louis, you'll, you'll definitely... Uh, You'll see what I'm talking about, and it's 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 a sight to behold. There's a lot of uh, there's just so many different layers to this thing. I would have been bored a long time ago if it was just a house from a movie. And as much as I love the film, um, and love the book, it, there's so much more greater at work here. Um, I love Tulsa, Oklahoma. I love. Uh, that a 15-year-old girl wrote this while she was failing out of English and got a D-plus in creative writing, was really going through a rough patch, and she wrote this masterpiece. And this masterpiece is different than all others because it really, literally is the book that starts the young adult category. It was the first time that a young adult ever wrote about being a young adult for young adults. And if I'm not mistaken, that is the most successful category of books now on the market. Uh, for me, it's changed my life. I, I spent the first, let's call it, first 45 years of my life trying to build my career and, and, and promote my brand and, and stay relevant in that way. And finally, it was a breath of fresh air to discover that this thing could use a, a, somebody to champion it. And instead of championing you know the the fragments of a, of my shattered career or whatever you know uh, in in music that I was able to parlay all that experience that I thought was like of no use in the end and kind of pivot out and put it into Susie's legacy and, and in particular saving the outsider's house and and by by taking this on um, it's opened my world to a whole bunch of other areas um we're looking to do weddings here we, we bring school children through on the uh, monday through friday so schools will read this at seventh grade they will go to the circle cinema which was also uh in a, a historic movie theater here that's 91 years old on the original route 66 and it was also featured in the movie they show that movie to those seventh graders and then the seventh graders come here dressed as greasers and socialists and they get to experience the the, the, the house, the museum, 
him. And I know that they get truly inspired because they don't have a lot of role models to look at and to say, hey, this person is from my school or my city or my town, and they've became successful and they, they, they're legends. And make no mistake, S.C. Hinton is their, that's their legend. That's their, that their mentor. They look and they go, this, this little girl did this here, and it gives them hope. And so... For me, I found a whole new purpose here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, I live here now full time. I moved from Beverly Hills and I've been here for two years and it only gets better for me. This town has changed uh, tremendously in the last 10 years for the better. Um, there's a ton of cool things here between Route 66 and Kane's Ballroom and the Drillers Baseball Stadium where the Dodgers double-A team plays. Uh, there's good food, good people, and, and affordable gas. What more can you want? And you can buy a beautiful home here for $150,000, which, tell me where else you can do that. So, I'm Danny O'Connor. I'm the owner of the Outsider's House, but I am the executive director of the Outsider's House Museum. And, uh, yeah, this is my American story. And what a story. Thanks to Danny Boy O'Connor for telling it. And thanks to Greg Hangler for putting this together. By the way, make sure to go to theoutsidershouse.com to learn more. Take a visit if you're driving across the Midwest. Stop in Tulsa. And my goodness, he took a stop in Tulsa, all right. And he called it his home. This New York boy, fatherless, chases his dream, ends up in L.A. L.A. is not his home. Pops down $15,000. He thought it was a big mistake. And of course... It became the most purposeful thing he ever did in his life. And he found meeting there and found, well, a family there. And as he put it, what a great place to go. Good food, good people, and affordable gas. Danny Boy O'Connor's story, the story of so many things in this country. But in the end, a story of finding home. This is How American Story. For more... Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for the podcast.